This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Manifestations of Hate, the Leftist War on the Family. Now that the 2020 elections are drawing to a close, the left cries out for unity. Those who have done their best to divide us by race, sex, and class are saying that it is time to come together. At the same time, they fight against the glue that has unified society since the beginning of time. Today, the Return to Order movement looks at the frightening state of the family in modern society. Our first article examines the war against fathers and the reasons that the leftists are so unwilling to admit that fathers are necessary. Mr. Edwin Benson reads his article, Why Fatherlessness is the Core of Family and Societal Problems. Several, probably apocryphal, stories about British Queen Victoria, 1819-1901, tell about her ability not to see things that she did not want to see. One such tale involves a protest at Oxford University during Her Majesty's visit. When the Chancellor of Oxford later apologized for the quote-unquote unruly students, the Queen is supposed to have replied, Unruly students? We saw no unruly students. Such stories might appear charming and quaint. However, denying reality is not the sign of a good leader. Yet society expects leaders not to see the disaster of fatherless households in America. Asserting that fatherlessness is related to any social issue is equivalent to wearing a sign on your back that says, I'm a racist. Yet fatherlessness is a huge problem. Anyone who looks dispassionately on fatherlessness sees a connection to crime, domestic abuse, and educational issues. However, not much connective data exists because the researchers are unwilling to risk their reputations or careers. When the left of center Daniel Patrick Moynihan, for example, attacked fatherlessness in the 1965 report that bears his name, he faced a mountain of criticism. Even the president for whom he wrote it, Lyndon B. Johnson, ignored its recommendations. When your salary depends upon government grants, you study those things that the government wants you to explore. The Heritage Foundation outlines the problem well. In 1960, about 5% of American children were born to unmarried women, up very slightly from the stable rate that existed from 1930 through 1950. Today, that figure is eight times higher, 40.6%. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, nearly one quarter of all children in the United States live in homes where their father is not present. The heirs of those who scoffed at the Moynihan Report have two reactions that have become reflexive with age. First, they argue that citing fatherlessness for society's ills is, quote-unquote, blaming the victim. Second, they brand any attempt to fix the problem as quote-unquote legislating morality. Raising the problem interferes with the faulty structural racism narrative that is so dear to socialists. Indeed, this is a moral problem that needs a moral solution. That problem has two dimensions, individual and governmental.
The individual dimension has its roots in the sexual revolution of the 60s. Virtually overnight, cohabitation became common, casual, and even hip. In 1967, San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury District hosted a months-long bacchanalia. The newspapers dubbed it the Summer of Love. The 1969 Woodstock Music Festival showcased the increasingly explosive mixture of rock music, drugs, and sex upon its muddy fields. In response to this massive moral decline, the majority of those who had hitheretofore been responsible for defending morality, parents, teachers, government, and the clergy, were silent. Of course, the sexual revolution left millions of broken people in its wake. Young people who learned too much too soon came to distrust everyone. An oft-mentioned generation gap destroyed the unity of many families. The college experience became less about learning and more about a promiscuous life without restrictions. Abortion rates soared. However, when the public broadcasting system, PBS, recently broadcast documentaries about San Francisco in 1967 and Woodstock, the overall tone was nostalgic. The governmental role dates back to President Lyndon Johnson. The great society, he told the nation, quote, is a place where every child can find knowledge to enrich his mind and to enlarge his talents. It is a place where the city of man serves not only the needs of the body and the demands of commerce, but the desire for beauty and the hunger for community, unquote. President Johnson said nothing about the city of God. The great society was thoroughly secular. Part of the great society was a program called Aid to Dependent Children, ADC. That program's goal was to assist children born out of wedlock. The government explained that these children had to raise themselves because their mothers had to work long hours at low-paying jobs. So the welfare system provided these women with a place to live and a stipend so that they could stay home and raise their children. The results were disastrous. Perhaps readers will forgive a personal anecdote that illustrates the disaster. This author managed a small apartment building in a depressed neighborhood in Flint, Michigan, during the 70s. Since ADC paid landlords directly, the woman who owned the building liked renting to ADC mothers. While looking at a vacant apartment, one 16-year-old mother told the author, quote, Yeah, I got pregnant so I could get my own place, unquote. Of course, no one in government was interested in gathering evidence of this phenomenon, but it was repeated tens of thousands of times, probably many more, across the nation. The epidemic of fatherlessness deepened with quote-unquote no-fault divorce. Before the mid-60s, getting a divorce required proving that one party was guilty of abandonment, extreme cruelty, or adultery. Only then could the innocent party be granted a divorce. During the 60s, the quote-unquote reformers 
labeled the system as barbaric, since it did not allow two people to simply admit their mistake and get on with their lives. In 1969, California Governor Ronald Reagan signed the first such law. The only criteria for granting divorce was irreconcilable differences. Eventually, all states passed similar laws. In 2020, one Pennsylvania lawyer advertises that a couple can get a quote-unquote uncontested divorce online for $137. Destroying a family costs less than the cost of a fine dinner with one's new paramour. According to the Washington Examiner, Ronald Reagan, years later, told his son that he regretted signing the law. ADC and no-fault divorce were only the tip of the iceberg. Those interested in more details can read The Sexual State by Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse. The extent of government complicity that she documents is eye-popping. It is time to stop ignoring the real harm caused by the epidemic of fatherlessness. While modern society is hostile to traditional morality, many are rebelling against the mainstream's tired narrative. Layla Miller's Adult Children of Divorce Ministry is an excellent example that addresses an important aspect of the fatherlessness issue. It is time for society to deal with fatherlessness that lies at the core of many problems that plague the family and society. Having looked at the war on the family in general terms, we now turn to one of the groups that clearly manifest this hatred. Since the so-called women's movement grew during the late 60s and early 70s, the traditional family has been its favorite target. They have enjoyed great success, and at the same time, sharp divisions have grown among them. Mr. Benson considers both their motivations and growing fragmentation in his article, Why Feminists Feel Threatened by the Family. According to Merriam-Webster, the first use of the word feminism happened in 1893. It didn't come into everyday use until about 1970, shortly before the disastrous Roe v. Wade decision. Its definition is relatively simple, quote, the theory of the political, economic, and social equality of the sexes, unquote. The word equal is easy to use, but its definition is far from simple. Its simple meaning is a state in which several things are identical. This is problematic when applied to people. Each person is so different that claiming all persons to be equal is absurd. The more traditional meaning interprets the word to mean equality of opportunity. Leftists mean equality of outcome. Equality is the watchword that defines most modern social movements, including feminism. The easiest way to understand the feminist concept of equality is in its position on the family. Feminists feel threatened by the family because it is anti-egalitarian. First, families create inequality by providing for the accumulation of property. Those with more members, and therefore more skills and abilities, will, more often than not, be more self-sustaining, an essential measure of prosperity. 
exercising family virtues, temperance, stability, marital faithfulness, and so on, helps families gain and retain wealth. Families without those virtues often decline. The family also provides a protected atmosphere for individuals to develop their full potential. This individuality represents a second threat to egalitarian feminists. This effort to excel conflicts with the left's constant desire to put people into communal groups of equal beings, to make each individual a part of the Marxist quote-unquote masses. Thus, the feminists must destroy the family. However, such a naturally occurring institution cannot be entirely obliterated. To accomplish their goal, the feminists must quote-unquote redefine the family. They do this by slandering the traditional family with the menacing term patriarchy. As the family became increasingly nuclear, it lost much of the strength of its normally extended relationships. Artificial contraception and procured abortion further destroy the family by depriving it of children. At the same time, the term family is watered down to mean just about any relationship, whether it be a firm, a school, or a club. Same-sex quote-unquote marriage and other forms of union redefine the family to mean whatever the liberals want. Inside the feminist movement, there are several angles through which the family can be attacked. Modern sociologists divide the feminist movement into three camps. Liberal feminists, Marxist feminists, and radical feminists. Each attacks the family in its own way. The Rise of Liberal Feminism Of the three, the liberal feminists are the most familiar. This feminism is rooted in the sexual revolution and the women's movement of the 60s and 70s. Liberal feminist objections are based on egalitarian principles. The family keeps women from being like men. Thus, large families prevent women from pursuing their careers. Such women were quote-unquote subservient to their breadwinner husbands. Betty Friedan's book, The Feminist Mystique, popularized a caricature of the family. The unhappy mother was isolated at home while her husband prospered in a stimulating workplace culture. The child-rearing function was portrayed as exhausting and repetitive. When children left home, the quote-unquote housewife was condemned to years of boredom. Since the 60s, liberal feminists have wrecked great havoc. They successfully lobbied for no-fault divorce laws. Procured abortion became legal with the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. The liberal feminists remain a key constituency for the Democrats. These women also entered the government, winning seats in Congress and other public offices. Liberal feminists almost eliminated any legal distinction between men and women, but their efforts were scuttled by the more traditional women who led the charge to defeat the quote-unquote equal rights amendment to the Constitution. Of course, liberal feminism did not always deliver on its promises. Many younger women do not find the career track so attractive. Today, youth see the liberal feminist list of demands as premillennial. 
the career woman archetype inspired by Mrs. Friedan's dystopian tale, has degenerated into the now lonely old woman. Many did not find the economic security that they were promised. Many older women now mourn the loss of families that they never produced. The False Premises of Marxist Feminism The lesser-known Marxist feminist has an older pedigree. Their view of the family goes back to the mid-19th century. The Marxist argument against the family is that it is a microcosm of the capitalist system. Like liberal feminists, the Marxists believe that the patriarch oppresses the other family members. However, the nature of that oppression is more economical than social. The wife and children become free laborers that provide for the patriarch's comfort and power. The family also perpetuates capitalism through human reproduction. The care for children leads to passing on quote-unquote unearned wealth to future generations. It provides a reason to quote-unquote hoard wealth. Marxists claim that the family robs the state of women's labor. Instead, they use their time and energy caring without pay for their biological children in a single home. For Marxists, most women should labor in factories or agriculture, which increases industrial production. Marxists argue that relatively few women should do the child-rearing and food preparation in multifamily nurseries and kitchens. Marxist feminism would even deny women the choice of homemaker. The notorious leftist thinker Simone de Beauvoir expressed her sentiment, quote, No, we don't believe that any woman should have this choice. No woman should be authorized to stay at home to raise her children. Women should not have that choice, precisely because if there is such a choice, too many women will make that one. In my opinion, as long as the family and the myth of the family and the myth of maternity and the maternal instinct are not destroyed, women will still be oppressed. Unquote. Like liberal feminism, Marxist feminism has not delivered on its promises. The failures of economic Marxism show just how miserable women fared under Marxist rule. The unholy combination. Radical feminism. Radical feminism is a weird combination of liberal and Marxist feminism. Like liberals, the radicals see men as the source of women's problems. The patriarchy oppresses women, exploiting them as breeders and doers of mundane tasks. Radicals also focus on the increasing levels of domestic violence as a symptom of patriarchal control. However, the radicals, like the Marxists, prescribe social revolution. For them, the patriarchal system cannot be reformed by legislation and economic opportunity. It must be destroyed. They are unable or unwilling to suggest meaningful alternatives beyond the system. Perhaps tribal arrangements not unlike those showcased at the ill-fated Chaz in Seattle might serve as a model for the radical society of the future. Their present agenda appears to be focused on violence and the destruction of the system as a means to set society on the radical course. 
For the goals of any form of feminism to succeed, all women need to see themselves as members of a single downtrodden class. This majority group even sees itself as an oppressed minority. Like all radical utopias, however, the different feminisms are roads to nowhere. Feminists fail to live up to their promises since their beliefs are so contrary to human nature. In addition, they deny their femininity and thus deny who they are. The fiasco of the 2020 Women's March is evidence that the women's movement, after all these years, still has not managed to deliver a message that resonates in the hearts of women. Follow the science has become a catchphrase among the members of the modern left. They use it because it asserts that they represent the logical side of an argument. By contrast, their opponents are cast as dull-witted hangers-on, loyal to an obsolete system dominated by a combination of superstition and nostalgia. However, their ideology often overcomes their own commitment to scientific fact. Mr. Benson exposes their internal contradiction as he explores the shaky evidence of sex change science. The politics of science is evident. For decades, the pro-homosexual lobby has labored under a mighty handicap. They claim that a false premise is true. Their goal is to prove, or at least make people believe, that there is a biological or genetic cause for homosexuality. To promote that end yet further, they heavily invest in research about so-called transgenders, those who claim something other than their biological sex determined at conception. Over the last decade, the pro-homosexual lobby has claimed the cause of the sexually confused as their own, since it is one step further down the road of total sexual liberation. The lack of a biological cause hinders their quest to claim quote-unquote minority legal status. Other groups favored for special protection exist because of natural factors. The women's movement is based on the obvious biological differences between men and women. Biology also determines the ethnic or racial identity of individuals. On the contrary, a homosexual man is biologically indistinct from a heterosexual man. Affirming the contrary is not a scientific, but a political conclusion. Until 1973, according to Psychology Today, the profession officially classified homosexuality as a mental disorder. The change came about through a political process. Quote, in 1973, the American Psychiatric Association, APA, asked all members attending its convention to vote on whether they believed homosexuality to be a mental disorder. 5,854 psychiatrists voted to remove homosexuality from the DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and 3,810 voted to retain it. Unquote. Does majority vote make science? The biological situation facing quote-unquote transsexuals is equally evident. The official diagnosis of the condition is gender dysphoria, which is still on the APA's list. A girl who wishes she were a boy is still a girl. 
Every chromosome in her body testifies to that fact. No matter how much she might want to be a boy, she will always be a girl. Hormone treatments do not make her a boy. Doctors can mutilate her body, but it is still a deception. Denial of the obvious is one sign of a mental disorder. There are also two medical facts about gender dysphoria that no one, least of all those who trumpet their adherence to quote-unquote science, should forget. First, there is no objective test to diagnose the disorder. The doctors rely only upon the emotional state of the patient. For instance, consider that many fathers play no role or only a peripheral part in their children's lives. A young boy might be so angry at an absent father that he wishes to be more like his caregiving mother. However, the child's minds may well change as they age and come to see their situations more objectively. Second, the effects of gender dysphoria treatments are often harmful and irreversible. A 2018 statement from the American College of Pediatricians sums up the situation well. Quote, We are concerned about the current trend to quickly diagnose and affirm young people as transgender, often setting them down a path toward medical transition. We feel that unnecessary surgeries and or hormonal treatments, which have not been proven safe in the long term, represent significant risks for young people. Unquote. Enter the Endocrine Society. It is a medical association composed of those who specialize in research and disorders of the endocrine glands. The endocrine glands secrete hormones. The society actively supports many aspects of the sexual revolution. Among their seven quote-unquote policy priorities is quote protecting access to care for women and transgender patients, unquote. To obtain this end, one of its statements promotes no-cost access to hormonal contraception. Quote, New data supporting the effectiveness and cost-effectiveness of these options underscore the necessity of protecting the availability of contraception to women through provisions of the Affordable Care Act, ACA, and funding of women's health organizations, unquote. Ill effects of contraception go unmentioned. The bias becomes even more apparent when examining the statement's 21 footnotes. Eleven of them came from Planned Parenthood's research arm, the Guttmacher Institute. The society's statement on quote-unquote transgender health begins with the information that this phenomenon was once known as gender identity disorder. It states that, quote, Today, however, this attitude is no longer considered valid. Considerable scientific evidence has emerged demonstrating a durable biological element underlying gender identity, unquote. Thus, they argue, the malady is biological, not psychological. The conclusion becomes hasty when considering the sources of evidence that back up their claim. First, it says that attempts to bring a patient's quote-unquote gender identity into line with fundamental biological realities, which they refer to as external genitalia and chromosomes, have been unsuccessful. There is an internal contradiction between the assertion and the evidence. 
Turning to the journal article that the society uses as evidence shows how groundless that position is. The study is a quote-unquote literature review. In other words, the authors read a lot of different articles that back up their basic premises. However, the studies do not seem to have gone through the full peer-reviewed evaluation. The abstract from the journal expresses uncertainty, saying that, quote, Although the mechanisms remain to be determined, there is strong support in the literature for a biological basis of gender identity. Thus, the existence of a quote-unquote biologic basis is purely speculative. It is the rough equivalent of saying, we want there to be something. We're not really sure what it is, but we believe that it's real, and we're going to act as though it is. This is the state of politically correct quote-unquote science. Despite the contentions of the left, science is never settled. Political positions often prevail. Unpopular ideas are never studied. Radically treating gender dysphoria is politically popular, even though the most apparent evidence directly refutes it. So in many state legislatures, the hasty approach of the endocrine society prevails. Support for the quote-unquote rights of transsexual children is the political price of the support of LGBT-promoting organizations. The mainstream media is quick to publicize any defections from the leftist anti-family agenda. Defenders of the family and childhood innocence cannot afford to lose this fight. Indeed, the fact that the debate is taking place shows how much ground has already been lost. Now, a concluding note from Edwin Benson. It is a great pleasure to bring you the Return to Order moment, as we have every week for almost two years. We have seen steady growth over that time. In fact, our recent episode, Pope Francis's Campaign Against Private Property, was heard by over 11,000 listeners during its first week, a new record for us. Many listeners may not know that more popular podcasts are easier to find than less popular ones. The formulas that search engines use are far more likely to present more popular offerings over those that fewer people want to hear. First, I want to thank all of you who listen regularly. Second, I want to encourage new listeners to look at the list of over 100 episodes that we have presented in the past. While some offerings are related to timely issues, most of them are timeless. You can see the list by subscribing to the Return to Order moment. By subscribing, you tell the keepers of the Internet world that people want to hear what we have to offer. It is also important to remember that word of mouth is the best advertising. In that light, please encourage your friends, family, and acquaintances to give us a try by listening to an episode. Thank you, and may our Lord and Our Lady richly bless you. This concludes... Manifestations of Hate, The Leftist War on the Family. Thank you so much for listening. To read these or find related articles, please visit our websites at www.tfp.org and www.returntoorder.org. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. 
Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. In that way, you can help Return to Order be more effective. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2020 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.